Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and this week I'll be talking to Jason Stahl, who is the author of Right Moves, the Conservative Think Tank in American Political Culture Since 1945. The book is published by University of North Carolina Press in 2016. It's a real pleasure to have Jason Stahl. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and this week, I'll be talking to Jason Stahl, who is the author of Right Moves, the Conservative Think Tank in American Political Culture Since 1945. The book is published by University of North Carolina Press in 2016. It's a real pleasure to have Jason Stahl on the podcast. Jason, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you on. This is a subject matter I've I've written about in the past and have been so excited to read your book. Before we get to it, why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm a historian at the University of Minnesota, Twin Cities. Uh, I am actually not in the history department, however. I'm currently a lecturer in the Department of Organizational Leadership and Policy Development. Wonderful. It's um, what you're writing about kind of does place you into what sounds like an interdisciplinary department, and it sounds like rightly so, given what you were working on is both historical, but but also deeply connected to the, the policy and political science literature. So yeah, so let's yeah. talk about this. Um, yeah. and, and before we get to the, the, the actual subject, which is conservative think tanks, let's talk a bit about the context into which they, they in some ways begin. Would you describe for us the, the liberal consensus and, and the array of think tanks that helped establish this consensus uh, in the mid-century on, on how public policy should be made? Sure. The organizations I write about, I tend to kind of position them against this sort of dominant way that post-war historians would think about the period, post-World War II, that is, um, that this is a period of sort of liberal consensus where you have institutions in academia and outside of academia who are uh, conditioned to think about policy in a certain way, conditioned to sort of think about the idea that policy can be a sort of scientific endeavor, um, that institutions can come together, identify social problems, and sort of scientifically or objectively think through ways in which to solve those problems. Um, historians now take, or take a critical look at that period and suggests that these uh, these institutions were, we, we tend to use this phrase liberal consensus in the sort of post-war liberal way. So in terms of your question, we would think about think tanks like the Brookings Institution being a sort of integral pillar in this idea of uh, creating policy in this way, of identifying social problems and then creating social policy remedies uh, in this way. In my book, I tend to situate uh, places like Brookings, most uh, directly within the Kennedy and Johnson administration, 
administrations in the 60s, particularly around sort of great society programs of the Johnson administration that we would obviously today um, identify and at the time would have identified certainly as a sort of liberal pro policy program. Uh, but institutions like Brookings were able to sort of set themselves up as uh, sort of neutral arbiters of policy, despite the fact that they were clearly uh, planning sort of what we would see as liberal policy objectives. So I think that the organizations then that I write about tend to sort of then counter position themselves to that way of thinking about policy. And, and let's talk about that. So yep. into this technocratic uh, environment steps the AEA. Mm -hmm. Now, what are the AEA's origins and, and how did it initially represent the viewpoints of conservatives? Yeah, so AEA's origins is really uh, when we think of the American Enterprise Association, right? So this was uh, technically, it, sort of, it emerges in 1938, but really doesn't get going in terms of activities until the mid-1940s and then definitely into the 50s. Uh, this is an organization that in its, in its beginning is thought of as a kind of uh, business association, like a lobbying association um, that is going to la uh, uh, lobby on behalf of big business. This would be a kind of primary way the organization is thought about in that period, particularly, let's say, just throughout the 1940s and into the very early 1950s. Um, this sort of um, is, a, is a sort of standard way of, of thinking about the organization at that time or such organizations at that time. But then in the 50s, there's this real kind of switch where it tries to begin thinking through a new type of institution, begin to think about themselves less as a business association, um, and more is what, what we would think of now as a think tank. Um, that is, they're going to, but the problem that they encounter, what I try to talk through in the book, is that they come up against, they start to really sort of form themselves in this period of this liberal technocratic consensus. And so very often, what the people within AEA, which later then becomes the American Enterprise Institute um, in 1962, in the 50s and the 60s, they have to decide how they're going to position themselves given this dominant way of thinking about policy at the time. And so they have to, people within that institution then have to begin to think through, well, how are we going to insert our voice or how are we going to be part of policy planning given this dominant liberal technocratic ideal at the time? Now, the AEA during this time period, as it's trying to figure out uh, its its mission and its tactics runs afoul of Congress. Yes, and and this sort of illustrates the the point that you were just making. So, yeah. uh, what is the debate in Congress about AEA's activities? What have they done wrong, and what are the what are the potential consequences for the organization of 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 this um, uh, treatment by Congress? So. Essentially, what they've done wrong in, or so there's congressional hearings that are called in the late 1940s around AEA and other organizations like it. And what Congress said is, says is that essentially what they have done wrong is that they have directly lobbied on behalf of big business, despite the fact that they were supposed to be uh, given their um, 
tax classification, we're supposed to be not doing so. We're not supposed to be directly lobbying. So they're, they're essentially brought up on charges of lobbying when they're not a lobbying organization. They're supposed to be an educational organization. And this is, at the time then, they're, then they're brought up on charges of you know, being biased on behalf of big business when they were supposed to be offering um, sort of objective, nonpartisan educational expertise. So as AEA, that's, uh, that's the charge. And then this happens later on. I, I don't know if you want me to go there at this point, but this then happens later on in the 1960s once again, where there's, there's these continuing sort of questions of what is this organization? What is it allowed to do, uh, particularly within this broader period of, of liberal technocratic consensus? Now, moving ahead, as, as you, you just have, would you tell us a little bit about William Baruti, um, his role in the evolution of AEA and later AEI? Uh, yeah. You highlight in particular a letter he wrote in 1962 yep. and then a speech he gave in 1972, 10 years later. Yep. What changed over this time period? Maybe you can start just telling us a little bit about uh, Baruti as a person sure. and then place him into this, this um, history that you tell. Sure. So William Baruti is becomes the president of uh, the American Enterprise Association um, in the late 1950s. He's first the vice president and becomes the president. He comes over from the Ch oh, Chamber of Commerce. And so he is he's definitely personally a conservative. He comes over to this organization um, and is has this personal politics, but at the same time realizes this tension within this organization, that he's in this period of what we, we've been talking about is this liberal technocratic period, and he needs to try to figure out a way to get conservative voices into public policy debates. And this is, so he, when he comes in, then he he enters into this problem where if we so if you think about he changes the name to the American Enterprise Institute in the early 1960s. He's trying to then think through a way of rethinking this organization, not as a business association, but as something different, right, as what we would recognize as today as a think tank. And but at the time, he also has to think through he he realizes this problem that AEA has run to run into in the past where directly lobbying on behalf of business interests is, um, is frowned upon. He knows he can get into trouble with his tax exempt status. So at the time in 62, he thinks the best way then to enter into the technocratic consensus is to sort of present um, a more either um, I guess the best way to think about it is to think about it. he will present the the facts of a policy issue. He will have um, this will be a place AEI where Congress can come and he can put for he can have his researchers at AEI put forward um, policy primers on any issue that might be up for debate. That's going to rigorously present uh, quote unquote both sides of a debate. And maybe that it, uh, those primers would be sort of um, gesturing towards the conservative position or trying to sort of 
um, get people on board with a conservative position. But really, he felt like even just having that conservative position there within the debate is sort of good enough, even if AEI is not going to directly lobby for it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, and then ten just ten years later, nineteen seventy two, he he is he is um reevaluating, it would seem, the yeah. letter that he wrote, the significant letter that tried to position uh, AEI in this way. So what does he say just ten years later that changes the course of this organization? Well, ten years later he and others then begin to kind of think recognize, I argue, that we're, that we've entered into a new policy debating world, that the liberal technocratic edifice has sort of has cracks in it. It is um, in many ways crumbling under weight, uh, the weight of its own contradictions. It is um, conservatives are, are suggesting that many of the problems that the United States has run into both internationally and domestically are as a result of uh, a sort of institutionally biased liberalism um, within the federal government, within dominant institutions and public policy making. And so what conservatives start to say then is they start to say that part of the reason we've had this problem is that conservative voices have been shut out of a marketplace of ideas. We have been um, relegated to the sidelines. And because we have been, this, these are the reasons we have the problem that we do. And so what I talk about in the book then is this becomes a new way to talk about policy rather than a kind of liberal technocratic edifice. You have this marketplace of ideas. And in the marketplace of ideas, conservatives can then say um, our conservative voices should be welcome. Our bias should be welcome. And because it is now bringing a leveling or a balancing to a policy debated world that was much needed. And so by 1972, someone like William Berudier is, I argue, at the forefront of developing this new way of talking about policy. So he can, by this point in time, go to, uh, let's say, corporate funders where he, he wants corporations or he wants wealthy conservatives to uh, cut checks to, a, you know, million dollar checks to AEI. He can effectively say we can be now this strident voice, this, this strident conservative voice in a marketplace of ideas. Um, and by this point, I think this, this then becomes a sort of new dominant way to debate policy. And so whereas in the previous period you had the idea that conservative bias in public policy debates would not have been welcome, now you have a shift to a, a world in which it absolutely is welcome. Now, today, when we think about conservative think tanks, we usually focus on the Heritage Foundation. Yeah. Would you explain a little bit about the roots of Heritage and maybe how it interacts with AEI? But, but as importantly, it's it's somewhat symbiotic relationship with Ronald Reagan. Yes. Yeah. So in the early 1970s, um, when all these changes are occurring, um, I think then it opens new spaces for new conservative think, think tanks. So it's not just Heritage, it's also the Cato Institute and others. And in the 1970s, they really come on the scene and say, yes, conservative voices are needed in this policy debating world, but AEI is not enough. Or in the case of Heritage and the founders of Heritage, um, AEI is not conservative enough. It is not stridently conservative enough. Um, it is not advocating for... 
um, the sort of totality of American conservatism. It is not speaking for this newly emergent conservative grassroots political organization in the 1970s, right? And so the founders of Heritage then really come in in the 1970s and suggest that um, despite the fact that Baruti has made these changes in AEI, they really say, we want to do something different than AEI. We want a more even more stridently conservative project. We want that project to be connected to uh, the conservative grassroots. And they do it, they, but in the 70s, they're still kind of struggling. They're still struggling through how they're going to get enough funding, how exactly they're going to be different than a place like AEI, um, who, is, who is going to fund the organization. And so much of the 70s is them kind of working through these questions. And But by the time Ronald Reagan comes in, you have this um, very interesting set up in 1980. So Reagan is when Reagan is elected in 1980, I think most people assume that AEI that is going to be this dominant conservative force within the Reagan administration. And what I really argue in the thir third chapter of the book is that it's not. It's that uh, the Her Heritage Foundation is. That they really are sort of ready in a way that AEI isn't in terms of inserting themselves into policy production. So they have this mammoth tome that they give Reagan at the beginning of his 1980 term in terms of you know different policies he should advocate for. They're ready with people to sort of shuffle into the administration itself. And most importantly, I think they're ready to sort of aggressively advocate for policy in a sort of sped up world, in a sort of uh, sped up policy debating world that they are more ready to participate in. So AEI is still producing sort of more longer form policy uh, books, articles, whatever the case may be, right? And uh, Heritage really comes in and says, no, what we need to do if we really want to sort of insert our voices in the media, if we want to be active in policy debates, we can't be afraid to be producing different policy ad advocacy um, very quickly. Um, and also making sure that we're our voice is sort of always present whenever a policy is being debated, both within the government or within the media itself. So I think that um, that makes them fundamentally just sort of more ready uh, to to be sort of central within the uh, the Reagan administration during both terms, really. Now you're a historian by training and have written really a, a history of this of this time period, but. There are clear connections to what we are facing right now in our electoral politics and, and what goes on in Washington. Uh, what from this book helps you make sense of, of what's going on? Are there pieces of the, the longer history, the, the history from the 1940s, that, that most relate to what, uh, how uh, Washington works or doesn't work now? What do you look to in, if you were to try to explain the relevance of, of this to our current position? Well, I think the way I've I've most tried to do that thus far is that I think I mean I think the if I'm for instance if I'm thinking about the current presidential campaign um, I think that I think there's a, a way in which this turn that I really describe in the book this turn towards this new way of debating policy beginning in the 1970s 
um, away from a sort of liberal technocratic edifice that had all sorts of problems in it in its own right, but then to something much different. This this marketplace of ideas where conservatives then are allowed to sort of or insert their own voices really by virtue of the voice being conservative itself, as opposed to needing to sort of, quote unquote, balance a debate, right? This big shift that I described that I think we're still sort of living with today in many ways, but also that setting up policy debates in that way, I think, suggests that the rigorousness of the ideas being forwarded are not the most important thing. And so I think what this has done then, particularly um, for conservatives, is that it's drastically lowered the bar for the insertion of policy ideas into the world of debate. So I think that quite honestly, and I've, I've written about this since the book has come out, that someone like Donald Trump is a sort of natural endpoint of um, understanding this way of uh, debating policy, right? So policies being forwarded, which I think people, um, you know, we're going to build a wall, we're going to ban uh, Muslims from entering the country, these sort of fly by the seat of their pants, sort of felt policy proposals that I don't think anyone could even suggest could be rigorously planned out. I think this is the natural endpoint of the shift in policy debate that I try to describe in the book. So I think that that's really how I'm trying to connect it, because I think people have been trying to explain the Trump phenomenon, have been trying to sort of think through its meaning. And I think a lot of I think I reject the notion that a lot of people are putting forward that it somehow is sort of maybe fundamentally different than, let's say, a more sort of uh, rigorous conservatism that maybe exists in think tanks. Right. I mean, I think that I think that's wrong. I think that what I try to do in the book is thought is help us think through how can how conservative think tanks really started us down this road to um, someone like Donald Trump being possible. The idea that uh, a candidate for the presidency of the United States could come on the scene and, and essentially not need to talk about policy in any sort of rigorous way, I think can be directly d tied to some of the d dynamics that I talk about in the book. Yeah, again, the book is Right Moves, the conservative think tank in American political culture since 1945. Jason's book is published by University of North Carolina Press this year. Jason Saul, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me.